Thanks for listening to The Murder of My Family. But before you go any further, stop. I want to tell you about the amazing new immersive podcast app, Bodacast, that will allow you to experience this podcast and others in a way that you haven't been able to until now. Bodacast will provide you a deeper version of the show and allow you to view photos of the people and places we're talking about in this episode. You'll also get links for articles about the case. When you experience a podcast on Bodacast, you not only will be listening to your favorite podcast, but you'll be getting stories that come alive with supplemental digital content that allows you to have everything being discussed in the episode at your fingertips. If you're like me, after you listen to a podcast, you search for more details or photos of the people and events discussed in the episode. With Vodacast, it's all right there for you. So try Vodacast out today. Click the link in my show notes to learn more about Vodacast or download the app today in the App Store and change the way you experience podcasts forever. That's Vodacast. V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, Riddle Me That, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 85 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a beloved Kentucky couple, Gary and Cheryl Young, who vanished in January 2004. A police investigation would lead to the Young's bodies, and the community was shocked when they found out who had taken the lives of this beloved couple. We'll dive into the Young's case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend of the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. 
In this episode, I'd like to thank Arlene Harbison. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that the sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Gary Lynn Young was born September 9, 1957, to Richard and Marie Young. He was raised in Carter County, Kentucky. He graduated from East Carter High School. Gary was a boilermaker with local number 40 in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and he was a member of the Freemasons at the time of his death in January 2004. Gary had one son, Andrew Garrett Young, from a previous relationship. Gary and his wife of 15 years, Cheryl Ann Keaton Young, lived in Hitchens, Kentucky. Cheryl Young was born on August 9, 1959 to William and Edna Keaton of Raceland, Kentucky. Cheryl was known to those closest to her as Sherry, and that's what we'll call her in the rest of this episode. Sherry's nieces and nephews called her Chi-Chi. She loved horses and rode them her whole life. Growing up, she had a miniature horse named Midnight that she would ride on the family farm. Sherry graduated from Raceland High School, where she was remembered for sticking up for kids who got picked on. She was a protector, and many people recalled her contagious laugh. Shortly after graduation, Sherry began work at the local telephone company, which operated under different names, including GTE and Alltel, and she was a member of the CWA Local 3371. Both Gary and Sherry were members of the Catlettsburg Church of God and also members of the American Quarter Horse Society. The Youngs had a small farm of sorts, raising goats, horses, dogs, and cats. But Gary and Sherry's true passion was horses. They loved horses. They showed their horses in local horse shows. Gary had a wonderful sense of humor. He would pay his niece not to call him Uncle Gary as it made him feel old. Life for Gary and Sherry on their little farm was just what they wanted, and they lived on their terms, doing what they loved. Ideally, they would have grown old there together, but sadly, that wasn't to be. 46-year-old Gary and 44-year-old Sherry Young were reported missing on January 16, 2004, after they both failed to show up for work, which was rare, and the alarm was quickly sounded. There was no sign of the couple in or around their home, and their car was missing. Police began a full-scale investigation. Just three days later, on January 19, 2004, a check in the name of Gary and Sherry Young was cashed at a Staples store in Lexington, Kentucky. Then, just two days later, on January 21, Cincinnati police found the Young Silver 2001 Chevy Malibu in the parking lot of Bethesda Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the time the police found the car, they wanted to talk to Gary's son, 22-year-old Andrew Young. He was wanted by police in connection with a theft he committed in October 2002. There was a fugitive warrant out for him at the time of his father and stepmother's disappearance. Andrew's girlfriend, 21-year-old Stephanie Griffith, had also been arrested in 2002 for felony assault during that same robbery incident. Andrew didn't show up for his April 2003 trial but Stephanie pled guilty. While the police kept their eyes open for Gary and Sherry Young, they were also looking for Andrew, and it didn't take long for him to be apprehended in Meade County, Kentucky. And in very short order, 
Both Andrew and Stephanie were charged with the kidnapping of Andrew's own father and stepmother, Gary and Cherry Young. Andrew didn't deny any accusations. And instead of refuting investigators' suspicions, Andrew actually called his attorney at 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning to let him know that he wanted to show authorities where the body of his father and stepmother were. The Greenup County Commonwealth's attorney was then contacted, and they contacted the Kentucky State Police. Soon, detectives from the Kentucky State Police were being led by Andrew Young to the bodies of Gary and Sherry Young. They went with Andrew to the Mushroom Mines near Lawton, Kentucky. The Mushroom Mines are former limestone mines. At one of the mines near Olive Hill, there are large holes on the side of the mountain that you can use to enter the abandoned mine. And it was one of these entrances that Andrew used to dispose of his father and stepmother. On Friday, February 6, 2004, at 2.39 a.m., the bodies of Gary and Sherry Young were found about a quarter of a mile inside the old mine. Each had been shot multiple times. Andrew Young and Stephanie Griffith were then charged with two counts of murder each, adding to their kidnapping charges. As the news of Gary and Sherry's murder spread around the community, People were saddened to hear the news, and shocked when they learned that the killer was Gary's own son. In court, it was stated that on or about January 14, 2004, is when Andrew Young killed Gary and Sherry Young at their farm, ambushing each of them separately when they came home. Stephanie assisted in covering up the murders and disposing of the bodies. She was also charged with engaging in conduct that provided Andrew the opportunity to kill Gary and Sherry. Andrew Young ended up agreeing to plead guilty to murder in exchange for the prosecution taking the death penalty off the table. He pled guilty to two counts of murder and one count of first-degree burglary. Andrew Young was sentenced to life in prison, and he's currently at the Kentucky State Reformatory at LaGrange. As for Stephanie Griffith, she entered a guilty plea on January 30, 2006 to the amended charges of two counts of criminal facilitation to commit murder and one count of complicity to commit burglary in the first degree. She was sentenced to five years imprisonment on each of the facilitation charges, and ten years imprisonment on the complicity charge. Her sentences were ordered to be run consecutively for a total term of 20 years imprisonment. In the end, despite petitions to keep her in jail, Stephanie served only eight years, and today she's free and appears to be living her life under a new name. The motive behind Gary and Sherry's murder is believed to be, like in many cases, money. Apparently, Andrew and Stephanie believed that if they killed Gary and Sherry and their bodies were hidden and never found, that Andrew would be the one to inherit their estate. But they didn't count on the police honing in on Andrew so quickly as being a prime suspect. And thankfully, they brought the case to a rather quick close. While the deaths of Gary and Sherry Young are still painful to remember for some people, those that knew them best instead choose to remember their lives and not their deaths. Gary Young is remembered by many as a great friend, and Sherry as a loving aunt. Gary and Sherry's niece, Lisa, joined me to discuss the case and how it's weighed on their families. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. 
Hey everyone, spring is here, and for many people, this is a time when we want to get out and get active. But for some of us, that's easier said than done, because often, things that have been weighing on us don't magically go away with the change of seasons. But the good news is, there is help, and that help is called BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from trauma, depression, and anger issues, to LBGT matters, grief, stress, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month with BetterHelp. Hi, Lisa, and thank you for coming on to discuss the case of your aunt and uncle with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, this is a tragic case, and it's led to some shocking culprits being involved in the murders. Uh, and we'll get to the details, but can you start out by telling us a little bit about Gary and Cheryl? I grew up calling her Sherry, my mom's youngest sister. She was the youngest of eight in their family. Um, and she and Gary had been married about 14 years, I believe, when this occurred. Um, Gary had been married previously and had a son from that marriage. So when he and Sherry got married, Andrew really, his son, had lived with them off and on at different times throughout, you know, the relationship. They were great people. They had a cute little farm um, in the country in Grayson, Kentucky. It was just an ideal setting. And they had a wonderful little marriage. It was, you know, Gary could be kind of grouchy sometimes like any man could, but you know, it was, it was a really good marriage. Um, and that's pretty much Sherry was known for her happy go lucky, great sense of humor. You know, Gary had a wonderful sense of humor as well. I mean, they were a wonderful couple. So the, it seems like they had a, a good marriage. It's a small town. The, I, I take it's probably the kind of town where a lot of people know each other. So they're just fitting in with the rest of the the crowd there in town. Absolutely. It was, I mean, a small little community. Um, Gary was actually raised in that area. Um, Sherry was raised about 30 minutes uh, northeast in Raceland, Kentucky. But, you know, they moved to Grayson when they got married, and that's where they resided. What kind of farm did they have? Um, it was just a very small farm, just, you know, a few acres, um, not huge. But they raised horses, and uh, they had lots of goats 
dogs. Sherry just loved when the goats would have babies. It was, and the, the horses, they had three horses and, um, there were three great nieces. So my two children and my sister's child, they claimed the horse. They said that that was their horse always. They called it theirs. I mean, it was a great little place. We, as a family, would go there and spend holidays, and the kids would ride horses and, you know, just enjoyed that time out in the, you know, on the farm. It sounds like a, a great place for people that love animals and love the outdoors and just a place to get away from stress or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like you were pretty it close was, with them, too, your family. Yeah. Very much, yes, and Sherry especially. She and I were not that far apart in age. Um, so she and I, I mean, I considered her one of my closer friends. We went on trips together. I mean, we would take, she and I would go take a trip to Myrtle Beach. And, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And, I, you know, I looked up to her, but yet she was, my a close friend I, I mean I talked to her you know all the time my, my husband and I moved to Louisville Kentucky so we lived three hours away but we were able to talk at least once or twice a week so it seems like this is a couple that's living a normal life everything's good nothing out of the ordinary not the kind of couple that you expect would would go missing which is what originally happened right Essentially, yes. You know, they were both hardworking. Uh, Sherry started working at the phone company, GTE, when she was 18. And she was still working there when she uh, passed. My uncle was a, a boilermaker, and he worked very hard. They were good people. They weren't extravagant. They didn't spend lots of money. They, you know, they lived a comfortable life, you know. But uh, they enjoyed their life. Let's go back to early 2004 in January. They came up missing. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the case uh, early on when they were missing? And what did your family think happened? And, and when the police got involved, what did they think happened? Um, initially, what happened was that that at that time, I was teaching school, um, and I actually was teaching kindergarten at a private school, and my sister called me, and this was on Friday, um, the week, it was the weekend before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. My sister called me, and she said, um, Sherry and Gary have, have not shown up for work for two days. We don't know what's going on, and she said, um, Dad has gone out to their farm to see if he, he and two of my aunts went to see if they could, you know, see if they were there, if they were sick or whatever. Um, at the time, my mother had a flower shop and GTE, my, my aunt Sherry's employer, had an account with my mother. So they knew her. And when Sherry hadn't shown up for work that second day, she, they, called, they called my mother which alarmed everyone. My dad and, like I said, the two aunts went out there. And and I'm three hours away in Louisville, and I call my dad, and I asked him, and I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, well, and I, I said, 
Dad, I need you to tell me the truth. And he said, okay, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It looks really bad. He said, there's a bloody handprint on the side porch. The house is locked up. It's January. It's freezing outside. The air conditioner is on, and we can see inside the house, and there's a bottle of bleach on the floor. So, you know, I knew immediately something had happened. I thought, well, if they got into an argument and something had happened to my aunt, that she, if she, like, had killed him accidentally, she would call me immediately. I would be the person she would contact because I'm situated, you know, three hours away from everybody. She would run to me. And it didn't happen. So the police came that day. My dad broke into their house. They walked through the house. They didn't really see anything. I mean, nothing major that stuck out to them. Um, A few spots of stuff here and there. They weren't sure what it was. This is a small little city. Um, And so they said, well, we don't have a warrant. You know, we don't know what's going on. So we're going to have to seal the house back up and wait. So my dad sealed the house back up. And, um, they, Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They had to wait to get a warrant. So on Tuesday, they were able to get the warrant to go in the house. And they, two of my aunts sat across the street from their farm and watched as they brought multiple cans of luminol into their home. And so... We knew then that something serious had happened. The police had already started watching their bank accounts to see if they saw any kind of activity or anything, and they did. We they they contacted us, told us we got a hit. Here's what's going on. Gary's son from his previous marriage, Andrew, at that time he was 21, I believe, and. They had surveillance of him buying things at like a office depot and those type of stores. He would go in and buy a large, like a phone system with lots of phones and all the stuff like it was for business or whatever. And then he would bring it back and, you know, give it back to them, return it for cash. So they had surveillance and they knew that he was using their credit cards. So they, you know, assumed he had possibly knew something about this at the time he was on um actually had gotten out of jail um we where we're located is directly across the street from across the street i'm sorry across the river from ohio and he andrew had gone over into ohio that's where his mother actually lived and he was over there he was into drugs quite a bit he got into some sort of altercation with some man he tried to, he stole the man's dump truck, which that tells you what kind of, he was doing some major drugs to think you could make a getaway in a dump truck. And the man came out and he stabbed the man. So he was in jail. My uncle went over and this was about a year before all this happened with my aunt and uncle. So my uncle went over to Ohio to bail his son out and like he always did. And he actually um, put their home up as collateral for his bail. Well, when Andrew got out, 
he went on the run. Fast forward, here's that weekend when they're missing, and we can't find him. And then all of a sudden here, they've been looking for Andrew for a year, couldn't find him. They were scared they were going to lose their home because they had put it up, up as collateral. And then Andrew is returning, is using their debt bank accounts and all kinds of stuff. So we knew something had happened with Andrew. So uh, the state police was asking for, you know, any kind of help. My cousin at the time, she lived here in my area with me. Uh, We got flyers made up from the state police. They actually sent them to us. We went every evening. We would go out to malls in in Louisville, Um, anywhere, restaurants, wherever we could go. We actually went into one of the malls, and one of the young ladies said, I just saw him 30 minutes ago. He bought, like, six pairs of shoes in here. He was with a girl and explained, and we're like, okay, that's his girlfriend. So Andrew and his girlfriend were in our city at that time. So he was actually driving through Louisville. I live on on the outskirt of just a hair on the edge of Louisville. He was driving through my little tiny city going past my house, my area every day, which scared me to death. But the police were watching my home for me. Thank goodness. But what happened was, was more and more kept coming out, more and more, you know, um, trails of Andrew doing things and trying to cash checks and that type of thing. And we knew he was here. What happened was, was the girlfriend had, she got a check from the government. Um, She had some sort of um, low IQ or something. I don't know exactly, but I know she got a check from, from the government. And she went back to Grayson to get her check. Well, when she went back, the police knew she was going to come for it. And they were watching for her, and they got her. So Andrew is here in a little city called Muldrop, close to Fort Knox. He's there. He and her had gotten an apartment across the street from the police station in Muldrop. That's brazen to me. I mean, you're brave enough to do that. You know, you would do anything. So Stephanie had gone back to Grayson to get her check and the police had her she told everything she fessed up to the whole uh, the whole plan everything that had happened gave them where Andrew was they went to Muldraw Muldraw their police chief actually dressed up like a handyman and told Andrew that there was something wrong with their heating unit that he needed to come in to their home he went in um and got his, put his little work box down, lifted the tray out because he had a gun underneath. This, you know, he was going to arrest Andrew. And he started pulling it out. And at that time, Andrew realized what was happening. And he dove to try to get a gun. But the police chief was able to get him before that happened. And they did arrest him. So he was arrested. She was arrested. They were, you know, both arrested at that time. Um, my uncle had been very good friends in high school with um, 
a, a lady who was a actual um, a state representative, I believe, at that time, but she still had her law degree. She was still an active lawyer, um, and she knew my uncle very well, and she actually went to speak to Andrew in jail, and she told us, the family, that Gary would have wanted her to represent Andrew, you know, on his behalf. And she made a deal with um, between Andrew and the state that he would tell them where their bodies were in exchange for um, them taking the death penalty off of the table, which is what happened. And they agreed to that. Um, he basically, early on, between him and his girlfriend, they admitted to everything uh, right away. Pretty quickly, yeah, within about a month. It took about three weeks to a month. Hmm. Um, what they initial, what came out, what happened was he and the they had tried four times previously to do this. One of those times, my child was in my aunt's home, um, and he couldn't get the nerve up to to actually, you know, go through with it. The fifth time was when he did actually go through with it. Um, he um, just waited in their barn, and they both went to work. And when they went to work, he sat in their house and drank alcohol all day um, until he got, you know, ready for that. He knew what time they came home from work. And my aunt came through the door first, and she um, had gotten their mail, and she just had tossed it onto their couch. It was still laying there when we first went in their home. And he stepped out of their kitchen and shot her. Uh, he took her, drug her into their dining room area, and he shot her, I think, four more times, I believe. And she passed there. Um, Gary came home about 45 minutes later, I believe is what it was, 45 minutes to an hour. Um he had actually won a guitar in some kind of raffle or something at work that day. So he had talked to his stepdad and was telling him all about that on the way home. So we knew what time about what time he arrived to their house. Um, he came home and he came in the back door. When he came through their sliding glass door, Andrew did the same thing. He stepped out, but he used a rifle and shot his dad three times in the head. And they then took the girlfriend's came on the scene. Then he called her and told her it's done, you know. So they took them and they put them in garbage cans and they rolled them out to my uncle's truck and put them in the bed of the truck. They actually drove 30 minutes away to a, a mushroom mine, which kids would go and party at at that time, but it still was a functioning mine. Uh, they grew mushrooms in there for harvest they drove the my uncle's truck about half a mile to a mile back into that mushroom mine and then they left their bodies there so they were at a constant 60 degrees 60 to 62 degrees i believe is what they told us for those almost a whole month while they were waiting on them to get you know find andrew and everything so they did get them but we were unable to see them because they had, you know, 
their bodies had decomposed and we were unable to see them all. Well, it's it's horrible that that would happen to anyone, let alone at the hands of their own son, stepson. Um, yeah. What a, a couple things to sort of unpack here. What did that news do to your to the rest of your family and, and to friends? Did, was it sort of like shocking? Did it uh, affect you all? That how could he do this to his own father and stepmother? Absolutely, um, it was quite a shock to everyone. I mean, just because of you know they were both kind-hearted, good people. I mean, the community and the way, you know, everyone just the funeral procession and, you know, the, the news media covering it. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, it was very emotional for all of us involved. Um, my children were very, like I said, they were very close to her. Um, my daughter, especially, I mean, she has been very, um, she's been very much affected by this because of uh, her closeness to my aunt. Um, my, when my daughter was a really, she was a baby and my aunt would, you know, have her putting on makeup and doing hair and stuff. And my daughter's now a hairdresser. And she, and she always asked me, do you think, do you think she, we call her Chi Chi. She would think Chi Chi would have would have been proud of me, and and I know that she would have. And she's, you know, my daughter's missed out on having her her whole life. But it was it was really um, an eye opener at their funeral when people, you know, as they came in to pay their respects, and they spoke to us and told us all these wonderful stories about, you know, my aunt how how she little boy getting picked up on on the bus when she was in elementary school and she stood up for him and you know stories about how people just always turned to her because she just was such a good friend and a good person she had a great sense of humor I mean but it 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 changed everything about how I am I was just talking about this the other day like I, if somebody doesn't show up for work at my work, I, I hit a little bit of panic because I think, you know, what if something has happened? What if this has happened to this person? No, and nobody knows because we didn't know. We didn't know for two days, you know, and that has, um, it has made me view things much differently than before. And Andrew was part of our family. I mean, he was with us for holidays. My husband and I, we talked about it quite a bit, how every holiday, you know, all of the boys, the younger boys would go play basketball. And my husband had story after story of how, you know, he would go play basketball with Andrew. So, you know, we were close to this boy. He wasn't, I mean, I called him my cousin. He wasn't a stranger to us. We knew him, you know, and he was part of our family. I think he was five when they got married. So he was just, you know, it's just, he, and his whole life is, is gone. I actually um, wrote letters to him in prison for some time. And, you know, 
just to see if he would actually tell the truth. Cause I knew, you know, I knew the truth through the facts and he did, he was honest with me. He told me the truth, but he would not meet with me. He would not allow me to come to the prison. Well, do you think what caused him long term to, to get to this point where he would do this to his own father and stepmother was that the drugs had affected him yeah. and, and caused him to do all this? Absolutely. I think that was the root of all of it. He did the drugs. He did that crime. He knew they were looking for him. He didn't like that. And he and his girlfriend were just so messed up on drugs. They thought, they honestly thought, and this is what came out, that if they killed them, they could just, he would inherit their home she wore the same size clothes as my aunt as the girlfriend did. So she basically took a bunch of her clothes with her when she left her leather coat, went through her purses to see which ones she wanted. She, and they thought honestly, they would just be gone for a while and then they'd be back. I mean, they applied for credit cards in their name and they were coming to the mailbox after this happened. I mean, they really, honestly, the drugs had them so messed up. They thought they were just set for life now. Just not thinking clearly and, and not making sense in their in their thinking. Yeah, not at all. None whatsoever. Was the the motive actually because there was friction over the collateral for the the um bail, or was it just because that he felt that he could steal his dad's stuff what what caused the initial decision for him to to do what he did do you think i i believe and from what we have been told by the initial investigation was that he was so angry that they had been looking for him because of you know the risk of losing their home because of his bail and he was mad because they were actually trying to seek him out. Um, and, he, you know, it was kind of a game of chicken. You know, I'm going to – and we had heard, you know, he would be in their city and, you know, police would go there and, like, I, I don't know, but they knew it specifically he had been there. But no one could ever catch him in that town, you know. So, honestly, I think the drugs just had them messed up. But I think he was angry more than anything that they were actually trying to get him to come turn himself in to save their home. Uh, just just a horrible story all the way around that you find out who did this terrible thing. And then it's someone within the family. And as you mentioned, you, you got to deal with that. And then other family members are missing them out of their lives now. So this just has affected your family every which way it seems like absolutely and you know as time went on and more and more things i mean just progressed and and kind of you know were things we had to deal with that we did not have to deal with if this had not happened like we did not know he had had a child when he was 14 andrew had had a child with an old with a girl who was 18 uh, my uncle had hid that from us, from my uncle and my aunt. They never, we never knew. He, the bo- little boy was 
a month older than my son, who my son is now 22. So he's his birthday, I believe, was in December. And he was, um, I think he was, I don't remember how old he was when, when this happened. But he was quite young. But unfortunately, in the state of Kentucky, there is no law that says that your children cannot benefit from your crime. Many states have that. That if you commit a crime, your children or who, wife, whatever, won't be able to benefit from that crime. The state of Kentucky does not have that. So when all of this took place and we found out Andrew had this son, his son stood to inherit a, a third of the estate, which was a quite a, a bit of money. You know, it was substantial. Um, but what they did was um, the family members uh, made an agreement with the mother of this small child. He was like four, maybe five at the time. And they made an agreement with her that he would not be able to in, get his portion, his third of the estate, until he was 25 because they wanted to make sure that she didn't take it. I mean, you know, from what we gathered, they were you know, they were a poor family, but, you know, my son's 22, this young man's 22 also, and in three years, he's going to benefit from his his dad's crime. Well, that's just a, a lot of parts to this case that are just, uh, you know, sad all the way around and just still years after the fact are still playing out. Uh, it's as if the story hasn't ended yet, it seems. Yeah. It feels like it all, it's always going on. I mean, you know, things, you know, like the court case ended, um, the, the insurance, my aunt, like I said, she had worked for GCE. They had been on strike and they had been back to work and her, her insurance payment, she had only made one payment of a dollar sixty six, and the insurance had to pay out three hundred and some thousand dollars. And they were furious, and they tried to say it was an act of war. Um, oh, I wow. mean, just <laughs> wow. one thing after another, you know, that had happened, you know, because of the situation and because of, um, you know, his greed. Basically, that's what it comes down to is his greed. What was their, uh, the sentence for both of them? What were they ultimately sentenced to? How much time? Andrew was given life with no chance of parole. Um, he was in a really rough uh, prison in Kentucky for a while. And then he was moved to uh, a not as difficult prison. Um, and we did notice in his prison pictures, you know, he has, has received a cut on his face in the meantime over the years. Um, he's starting to get gray hair. He's getting older. But again, like I said, he will not meet with me and speak with me. Um, Stephanie, the girlfriend, she got, um, it was a total of 20 years. Um, they said that she would most likely serve 14. Um, she served eight. Actually, we spoke at two parole hearings. Um, she served eight and she's out. And from what we've heard has changed her name. So people won't know about this and lives in a different location. None of us know where that's at. So, but Andrew is still in jail. 
Uh, and so, and she, her crime was helping to plan it and cover it up, not actually yeah. commit the murders. But still, that's just a, if you have a chance to stop someone and you go through with it, then you should, you know, I think in my opinion, anyway, you should be held to the same kind of punishment. Right. And we actually could never, because honestly, the family, we thought that she had killed my aunt and that he had killed his father. That's what we thought because, I mean, there were just certain things that had happened, you know, along the way during the investigation that we had heard little bits and pieces of, um, but they wanted him to serve and, and Andrew would not say she had a part in it. He wouldn't. So we don't know if she really didn't have a part in it or if he was just, you know, taking the brunt of it for her. We just didn't know, but, you know, going to parole hearings and uh, I mean, it's, it's something you don't expect to have to do in your life. You know, I mean, now we don't anymore. He's in there till he dies, but it's, it's it's a shock and it's sad and you know you I always miss I miss them but I miss her the most I miss what she you know being here for different parts of my life I miss that yeah. has Andrew ever shown any kind of remorse or said he was sorry? no no well I I I say that too quickly. Like I said, I had written to him for quite some time in probably about a year and a half, two years. I wrote to him while he was in jail. And again, he he did. He was honest with me and told me the truth. Um, And I knew it to be fact that things I asked him, Um, you know, but I did ask, can I come to see you? And he he wrote back. Why? Why do you want to see me? Well, because I want to ask you. I want to see you face to face. No, because this is a, an open, you know, visitation room. It wouldn't be appropriate. You know, it's like he just didn't want to face us. Um, maybe because he, he had, mean, maybe he was ashamed or uh, yes, of what he had done. Yes. No. Yes. I believe it was just the guilt. You know, I believe it was just his guilt. So all, all these years later now, when you look back at, at your aunt and uncle, what do you want their legacy to be? What do you want people to remember them for? Their kind-heartedness. I mean, their goodness. Um, their willingness to help anyone. Their, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. You know, I listened to lots and lots of podcasts. If you know, most of the time you don't hear people say. Yeah, they were a a jerk. (laughs) They were horrible. They were horrible. But truly, my aunt and uncle, they were the epitome of the good people that you do not expect this to happen to. Not in my family. Not my family. My family, you know, great church going people, the, you know, salt of the earth you know and then for something like this to happen i was so grateful that my grandparents didn't see this they they could not have taken this but they were you know i i do think of them often i do think of them and and how they missed things along the way but they were good people and i i just hope people would 
be kind to someone else because you don't know when this will happen to you. If it can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. Yeah, just such a tragic case all the way around and, and still, again, still sounds like it's it's reaching out after all these years and still changing outcomes in, in, in your family's lives. Yeah, I can't thank you for coming on and, and sharing you know, a little bit more about Gary and, and Cheryl. It, it sounds like they were really good people and uh, just very unfortunate that this, that this happened to them. Absolutely, and I appreciate you allowing me to speak about them. It, it brings me joy to know that I can let other people know who they were. Yeah, and maybe someone out there listening is in a similar situation and, and can identify with what you've been through and what your family's been through. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time, and, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thank you so much again. I appreciate you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for you for a true crime podcast I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Ignorance Was Bliss, so be sure to check it out. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey, this is Kate. I'm a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, and I collect stories. Everything from true crime to trauma to parenthood. There's a lot more in common between depression and sociopathy, or between serial killers and podcasters, than you might think. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at iwbpodcast.com and iwbpodcast on social media.